the uh, author of the best-selling book, God is Not Great, How Religion Poisons Everything. He had an interview, or he was interviewed by a, a Unitarian minister, Marilyn Sewell. And listen to this exchange between the, the noted atheist and this, this uh, Unitarian minister. Marilyn Sewell said, the religion you cite in your book is generally the fundamentalist faith of various kinds. I'm a liberal Christian, and I don't take the stories from the Scripture literally. I don't believe in the doctrine of atonement, that Jesus died for our sins, for example. Do you make any distinction between fundamentalist faith and liberal religion? And this is what Christopher Hitchens said. I would say that if you don't believe that Jesus of Nazareth was the Christ and Messiah, that he rose again from the dead, and by his sacrifice our sins are forgiven, you're really not in any meaningful sense a Christian. She walked away pretty quickly. But here's what's no, what is just absolutely striking about that encounter, is that here is a committed atheist who grasps the importance of knowing what you believe. Not just that you believe, but actually what you actually believe. You know, we live in a world where we believe a lot of things. And the word, the word believe gets thrown around, but even inside the church or within Christianity, the word believe gets thrown around as if as long as you believe, that's all there's needed. And, and and the reality and what Jesus is getting to in this story is, no, it's not just a matter of do you believe generically or generally. It's what do you believe in? What is the nature of true belief? What does it really mean to believe? Those are the questions that Jesus answers in this story when he meets this official who has a son who's dying. So what is the nature of true belief? What does it mean to believe? First, it means belief that is detached from circumstances. Now, let me explain that. This is one of three stories in the Gospel of John that occurs in this place called Galilee with these people from Galilee. The first is in when Jesus changes water into wine. That happened in Cana, Galilee. Then you have this story where he heals the official son, and then in John 6, he feeds the 5,000 in Galilee. So three encounters with these people. And each time, there's a similar encounter. The Galileans, they welcome Jesus. They kind of throw open their arms. But every time, Jesus isn't very impressed with that. In fact, it gets highlighted in verses 44 to 45. It says, For Jesus himself had testified that a prophet has no honor in his own hometown. So when he came to Galilee, the Galileans welcomed him, having seen all that he had done in Jerusalem at the feast. Now, there's a big contradiction in those verses. Right? What Jesus is saying is, when I come to my hometown of Galilee, no one honors me. But then it says the, the Galileans welcomed him. So what's going on there? Well, well, Jesus is addressing something that's wrong with their welcome something that's wrong with, with their belief. Because in, in, in one of these stories, it says that uh, in the Galileans, it says that, he, that they believed in him. So he's, he's addressing something that's wrong. 
What exactly is the problem? Well, he's going to explain it in this story. So you've got this official who, uh, let me just, Davis, can you pop the lights up a little bit? There we go. Better. So you got the story. The, the official uh, comes from his home. He comes to, to see Jesus because he hears that Jesus is in town. Now, we can assume or presume possibly that he heard about the, the time in his town where, where Jesus changed water into wine. Word got out, so he says, okay, there, Jesus is some sort of miracle worker. My son's at the brink of death, so I'm gonna come. And he comes and he says to Jesus, Jesus, would you come down with me and heal my son? He's at the brink of death. And Jesus' response is, is anything but accommodating or sympathetic. Notice what he says in verse 48. Unless you see signs and wonders, you will not believe. Now, he's addressing, in that statement, he's addressing the problem. What exactly is the problem? Well, we learn a little bit more in John 6 when Jesus feeds the 5,000. Miraculously, he says to them, to these same, these same people, after he feeds the 5,000, he says, you're seeking me not because you saw signs, but because you ate your fill of the loaves. In other words, what Jesus is saying is, listen, you're welcoming me because you see me as a miracle worker who can order up and dial up miracles to give you what you want. That your, your belief in me is ultimately attached to self-serving results. That your belief in me is attached to circumstances. That that's the problem that Jesus is identifying here, almost like a genie in the bottle, right? You rub the bottle, out comes the genie, and he grants your wishes. That's, that's the type of belief that they had in Jesus. And Jesus is calling that out. Let me try to explain it this way. I want you to imagine there's a, uh, there's a town planner who is gonna um, design and put up new signs in this town to help traffic move through this town really quickly and really efficiently. But it's also an old town. It's a historic town. It's a famous town. It's a beautiful town. And so he decides, if I'm gonna put road signs up, they've gotta be really, really nice, really ornate, really beautiful. And so he puts the sign, they put the signs up and what they find is that everybody stops their car and just start staring and admiring the road signs because they're so beautiful. And there's actually more congestion than there was before. Everybody stops and they're staring at the signs. But the road signs were designed to move them somewhere, to move you somewhere else, to lead you somewhere. And what we see here in the Gospel of John is that Jesus' signs that are, I mean, they're beautiful, they're amazing, they're miraculous. He changes water into wine, he heals the sun. In, in John 6, he changes, uh, he transforms five loaves of barley and two fish into feeding 5,000 people. I mean, they're miraculous. Yet John says, no, but these are signs. They're, they're, supposed, they're leading you somewhere. They're, they're pointing you somewhere to something about who Jesus is. That They're pointing you to where your faith should be attached, right? That he, here's the point. Jesus never intended for your faith to be attached to a miracle, a circumstance, or a result. That Jesus never intended for your belief to be attached to a circumstance or a result. 
that all the signs and the, raw, and, the, and the displays of power Jesus does are intended to drive you to, to him. N.T. Wright, he says it this way. This is the challenge the gospel presents to us today. We are not invited to believe in an abstract idea or a nebulous feeling or an indefinable spiritual experience. So what are we invited to believe in? What is the nature of true belief? What does it mean to believe? So first, it's that your belief is not attached to circumstances, but that it is attached to Jesus' word. It's attached to Jesus' word. Look at the progression of how this conversation goes between the official and Jesus. Right, again, the official comes to Jesus. He says, will you come down with me to my house and heal my son? And Jesus' response, as I noted, is anything but sympathetic and accommodating. In fact, it's a rebuke. This man comes to him in desperation. Come with me and heal my son. And Jesus says, you won't believe unless you see signs and wonders. It's it's really a rebuke. But the man's persistent. What does he say? Jesus, right after he rebuked him, Jesus, come down with me and heal my son because he's gonna die. And then look at Jesus' response. Notice his response. He doesn't give the man what he wants. He doesn't go with him. He doesn't go with him to his house to heal his son. He actually gives him something much better. He gives him his word. What he says in verse 50. Verse 50, he says, go. Your son will live. You see what Jesus is doing here. Why does he... Why does he not give the man what he wants? Because he wants this man's circumstantial belief or or miracle worker belief to be transformed into true belief that's attached not to the outcome, but that's attached to Jesus himself. So Jesus gives him his word. And then notice how the man responds. He actually responds. He says, says, the man believed Jesus' words and left and went back to his home. He actually believed Jesus' words. He didn't demand that Jesus come with him anymore. He believed what Jesus said. He believed without seeing, which is what is at the heart of of faith. In fact, Jesus addresses this later in the Gospel of John in, in John chapter 20, after he rises from the dead. And Jesus appears to the disciples and they see him, but Thomas wasn't with him. So the disciples go back, they see Thomas, they say, Thomas, we've seen the Lord. And what does Thomas say? Lest I see the nail in his hands, lest I can touch the nail in his hands and put my finger in his side, I will not believe. So what does Jesus do? Well, he comes to Thomas, shows him the nail mark and he shows him the side. But then what does he say to Thomas? It's striking. In verse 29 of chapter 20, it says, have you believed because you have seen me? Blessed are those who have not seen and yet have believed. The apostle Paul says it this way in Romans 10, 17. So faith or belief comes from hearing, not seeing, and hearing through the word of Christ. So you've got this official 
that believes, not because Jesus did the miracle, which he eventually did. He believes because he heard Jesus' word. Now, you say, why the distinction? Why is this so important? Why does this matter? It matters because at the core of faith is trust. And trust is not seeing and then believing. Trust is believing and then seeing. Let me give you an example from marriage. And I want you to imagine if you're married that you, you tell your spouse that you're gonna do something. You say, I'm gonna take out the trash. I'm gonna clean the bathroom. I'm gonna fill the, gas, or the car up with gas. And I want you to imagine that your spouse doesn't believe you until she checks the garbage can and she checks the bathroom and she checks the gas gauge on the car. Now, how would you describe that marriage? Right, there's, there's a lack of trust. Now, let me just give a caveat here, okay? We're all imperfect, right? So don't absolutize this, making a point here. That I'm seeing elbows and <laughs> we're all a mess. Our marriages are a mess. So just work with me here. The, the point is this though, that there's no, there's no trust, right? That's, that's not trust. That's I've got to see it done. I don't believe your word, right? Now, that kind of relationship is really not a relationship. It, it's, a, it's, a, it's a coexistence. There's a superficiality. Right? There's, there's no real core trust because it's saying, I don't believe your word, and when I see it, I'll believe it. Now, let me flip it around. Let me say, let's say that you say to your spouse that you're going to do something, and he believes you, and he doesn't, he doesn't have to go see it done. He believes your word. Right? He just, what does that describe? Well, it describes an intimate trust. It describes that there's a deep sense of uh, intimacy and relationship because at the core of trust is believing one another's words. That that means that there's a deep sense of relationship. So the reason why this is so important to understand, right, that, that your belief is attached to Jesus' word is because at the core of that is trust. That believing Jesus' word when you don't see it communicates that there's a real relationship there, that there's a real trust with Jesus, and that's at what the core of Christianity is. Now, let me give you a couple points of application here. First, if, if you're here and you are investigating Christianity, you are um, investigating the claims of the Bible, who Jesus is. You've got lots of questions, okay? And you're not there yet. You need to ask those questions. Those are important questions. And you should seek to get them answered. But if you're operating with the premise that you will not trust Jesus Christ until everything is clear and every question is answered, you will never get there. You'll never ultimately get there. And I'll say it this way even if you got every one of your questions answered to absolute clarity, do you see that that's not gonna produce trust in Jesus' word? That ultimately you're trusting your 
your ability to, to get clear answers, right? So as one who maybe is searching, you need to ask your questions, you need to seek answers, but you gotta understand at the end of the day, right, that there's gonna come a point where you have to trust Jesus' word, that you have to trust what he says, even if you can't quite get clarity on everything. Let me give you a second point of application here. For those of you that have placed your trust in Christ, you don't have to wait to see it for it to be true. Let me explain what I'm saying there. You don't have to wait to see it for it to be true. For example, when, when Jesus says through his word that you are a child of God, you don't have to wait to see if you feel like a child and not an orphan. Because the reality is you're, you're gonna hit moments of life where you do feel like an orphan or that when you come across a profound rejection in your life from a boyfriend or a girlfriend or, or even maybe a spouse or a friend or a family member, right? you don't have to let that create doubt on whether or not you're a child of God. Because Jesus says in his word that you are a child, whether you feel it or not. And so there's a trust in Jesus' word. Or I'll, let me give you another example. Jesus says in his word, if you've trusted him, that you're holy and blameless in his sight because you have Christ's righteousness. You don't have to wait to see if you feel holy and blameless. Because if you're gonna wait to see if you feel holy and blameless, you're never gonna get there. In that, in that scenario, if, if you commit, indulge in a blatant sin, you don't have to wait to see if, if somehow you're gonna be forgiven or somehow feel holy and blameless again or somehow clean up your act so that you can feel that again. No, you trust Jesus' word. Jesus in his word says you're holy and blameless. You're forgiven, right? So you attach to Jesus' word, not what you see. Let me, let me just boil this down to one question. I think it can all be boiled down to one question, and it's this. Are Jesus' words more real to you than what your physical eye can see? Are Jesus' words to you more real than what your physical eye can see? Look at the story. The official that comes pleading with Jesus ends up believing Jesus' word, which was, go, your son will live, before he ever saw his son healed. In fact, what was his last memory that his physical eyes saw of his son? When he came from the house, he looked, and his son was on the brink of death. And now he's standing before Jesus. His physical eyes had seen his son on the brink of death, and Jesus says to him, go, your son will live. And that official believed Jesus' word more than what his physical eye could see. And so when we talk about what it means to believe or, or, or true belief, we're talking about believing Jesus' word more than what your physical eye can see. That brings us to the third point. So it's belief detached from circumstances, belief attached to Jesus' word. And finally, it means belief that overcomes death. Belief that overcomes death. So the the official believes Jesus' word. He heads back to his house. And on the way back, his servants run out and say, your son is recovering. And then we pick up in verse 52. 
So he asked them the hour when he began to get better. And they said to him, yesterday at the seventh hour, the fever left him. The father knew that was the hour when Jesus had said to him, your son will live. Now, miraculous. Jesus snatches this boy out of death. And even more miraculous, he does it from afar. Now, there's two conclusions you could reach from this story. One conclusion is this, that if you believe hard enough or you have enough faith, you will be healed, right? The, The official believed and therefore a son was healed. There's another conclusion you can reach from this story. And that is that Jesus is true to his word. Jesus said, your son will live. And guess what? His son lived. Jesus said it, it was as good as done, right? Which is it? Verse 54 gives the answer. Verse 54 tells us which conclusion is right. This was now the second sign that Jesus did when he had come from Judea to Galilee. See, remember, this is, a, this is a sign. It's not just a raw display of power that says this is what Jesus can do in your life. Certainly he can, but that's not the point. The point is it's a sign, which means this. It tells us something about who Jesus is, and here it is. It tells us about the identity of the Jesus we are invited to believe in, not about our belief that moves Jesus to give us what we want. Let me say that again. It tells us about the identity of the Jesus we are invited to believe in, not about our belief that moves Jesus to give us what we want. So what's it tell us about Jesus? It tells us that he's the giver of life. He's the giver of life that snatches life back from death. In this story, the official son's on the brink of death. But what we'll see in a couple years, two few years later is that Jesus finds himself in a very similar place at the brink of death, hanging on a cross, gasping for his last breaths. But the difference in that story is that the father didn't save him, that Jesus died. Why did he die? 1 Corinthians 15 tells us, says that death was swallowed up in victory. Oh, death, where's your sting? Oh, death, where's your victory? That Jesus Christ on the cross, he literally swallowed death. He ate it for lunch. He swallowed death that you and I would live because he swallowed it for us. And so he says, if you'll trust me, if you'll believe in me, you will live. You know, there's um, there's a reality, and I don't, I don't mean to be morbid here, but maybe I do mean to be morbid. Everyone is at the brink of death. Everyone is at the brink of death. Three weeks ago, a sophomore football player at Fleming Island High School collapses in the weight room and two days later dies. Those 58 or so concert goers in Las Vegas certainly didn't expect to lose their life at a country music concert. The the words that you hear in the doctor's office or the hospital, those dreaded words after a scan that you have cancer or that disease that is causing your body to deteriorate. Every one of us 
is on the brink of death. And Jesus says, if you will trust me and trust my words, that I swallowed death for you and that you will live, that you will live, that you don't have to be consumed by death or the, the reality of facing death because Jesus swallowed it. And he says, you will live if you trust me. There's a, um, there's a great story of this in the Old Testament. In the Old Testament book of Daniel, there's three men with very, very popular names, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. And they have been taken into exile in Babylon out of Jerusalem by King Nebuchadnezzar. And when they get to Babylon, Nebuchadnezzar says, you will bow down to the gods of the Babylonians. And Shadrach and Meshach and Abednego say, no, we won't. And Nebuchadnezzar threatens them and says, if you don't bow down to the gods of Babylon, I will throw you into the fiery furnace. And listen, I want you to hear their response. Oh, Nebuchadnezzar, we have no need to answer you in this matter. If this be so, our God, whom we serve, is able to deliver us from the burning, fiery furnace, and he will deliver us out of your hand. O king, but if not, be it known to you, O king, that we will not serve your gods. In essence, what those three men said is this, God, if you choose to rescue us out of this furnace or not, it doesn't matter, we will serve you. It will not change who we think you are. Whether you save us or whether you don't, good outcome, bad outcome, you are God and we trust you. The story gets better. So Nebuchadnezzar throws him in the furnace and fires it up really, really hot. And he goes back to check on him. So awesome. He sees not three, but four people in the furnace. And he says that the fourth looked like a son of the gods. It was a pre-incarnate Jesus Christ. The one who would swallow death, the one for us who has swallowed death was walking with them in the face of death, saying, you have nothing to fear. I am with you. And so belief that's attached to Jesus' words in the person of Christ overcomes death because Jesus swallows it for us and he takes away the fear and he walks with us. Ravi Zacharias says it this way, faith is confidence in the person of Jesus Christ and in his power so that even when his power does not serve my end, my confidence in him remains because of who he is is. Michael Horton, in his book, The Gospel-Driven Life, records this experience that he had. He says this, anxiously anticipating the quite premature delivery of our triplets, I will never forget the moment that the doctor looked at me and announced, they're all alive. It was not a foregone conclusion, at least for one of them. And until that report, my wife and I were in suspense. All of the wishful thinking, 
even from certified medical professionals, could not alleviate that suspense, turning possibility into actuality. I could believe all I wanted in a successful delivery, but I had no promise to rely on, either from God or the doctors. And the intensity of my believing it had nothing to do with the state of affairs. My confidence developed entirely on the words that the doctor uttered. So I ask you this morning, where is your confidence? Is it in a feeling? Or is it in an outcome? Or is it in a result? Or is it in the words of Jesus? Jesus' words to you that are more real than what your physical eye can see. Let's pray. Father, we confess that faith comes from hearing and hearing from the word of Christ, that Jesus, you speak your words to us and that in your words are life. You announce to us if we're in you that we're forgiven, that we're children of God, that we have eternal life, that we have nothing to fear, that you're sovereign and in control, that you rule the universe in our lives, that you're compassionate, that you sympathize with our weaknesses, that you've taken away our sin that we're holy and blameless in your sight, that the words and the truth go on and on. And yet, Father, we confess that we oftentimes believe what our physical eye can see more than we believe your words, Jesus. And would you help us, O Spirit? There are people in this room that are in very, very trying places. When we pray boldly, Holy Spirit, that you would take the words of Christ and that you would plant them deeply in those hearts and in our hearts. And that, Father, as we take the Lord's Supper now, that we would understand that these are visible words straight from you to strengthen us and to reassure us and to remind us of your promises. And we pray this all in Christ's name. Amen.